a few moments. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were a little bit further back in, in Luke's gospel, and we were thinking about all the different parables that Jesus uh, told us. Uh, today, we're into miracles. Uh, I wonder if I, if I said to you, think of one miracle that Jesus performed. What would come to mind for you, first of all? Shout them out for me, will you? What's a, what, what miracle comes to mind when I say, name a miracle Jesus did? Interesting. Water into wine. I heard that in, in stereo from around the church. Fair enough. It's very true. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Pretty impressive one. Healing the blind man. Sorry, Liz. Driving out demons. You might think of feeding the 5,000. Did someone say that over here? The miraculous catch of... There's various water ones, aren't there? You know, calming the storm, uh, walking on the water, all kinds of things. Why did Jesus do so many miracles? I mean, there, there are lots of possible right answers. I guess there are a few wrong ones, but you, you're fairly safe with lots of things you might say. To make a point. To demonstrate his authority in all kinds of different ways. Yes. To different people as well. Now, of course, there are lots of different things. Sorry, go on, Roger, yes. Fulfilling prophecies, yes. So they're various, a good one, that one got an ooh from this end of the church. <laughs> there you go, good, it's obviously a good answer, that one. Uh, now we're on page 1043, we're in Luke chapter 11, there is a miracle. I don't know if you noticed, what, what is perhaps a little bit unusual about this miracle that's described in the passage that Marianne just read? It strikes me it's not like some of those that you've just called out as different miracles Jesus did. Did, did, did anyone spot anything that felt a little bit different about this one? Maybe not, I don't know. The thing which struck me, and strikes me as quite unusual, is the way that Luke writes about it and, and what happened here. Uh, if you, many of those ones we've just mentioned, whether it's Jesus turning water into wine or feeding the 5,000 or calming the storm uh, or the miraculous catch of fish, uh, they give us quite a lot of detail, don't they, about what Jesus did, what he said, what the disciples are up to. Uh, we get one verse on the miracle here in Luke 11, verse 14, the first verse of the passage. And then the rest of the passage is all about how the people respond to the miracle and what it means. Now, someone did say uh, that the miracles point to something about Jesus. And there is clearly some of that going on here. And so this is a really helpful passage, I think, to help us get our heads around Jesus' miracles and what they are all about and what they have to say to us today three things uh, that I want to suggest, uh, which are true of what happens here, but are quite often true of what Jesus says and does. Uh, the first one is the way in which Jesus' miracles reveal divisions. Uh, Jesus' miracles reveal divisions because Jesus himself often causes division. He divides people uh, as he goes around Israel doing all of these things. Now, there are many things that divide people, aren't there? Some people will have been divided this afternoon over football or possibly rugby. People are definitely and more seriously divided over politics, sometimes to the point of not talking to one another. Uh, in our family, if you want to, to cause division, well, Claire sometimes does this, um, I, I can say. All she has to do is ask a simple question of the whole family. What would you like for dinner tonight? 
Um, Claire is a wonderful cook, I should add, but it's a tactical error when everyone is in the house to say, what would you like for dinner? Because you can almost guarantee that you're going to get different answers from all the different people who are there, even if they're all good options, he says very quickly. Far more importantly, though, here in Luke chapter 11, there is division over what these, this miracle that Jesus does means. So have a look at verse 14. We're told Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd were amazed. That's the bare facts of what happened. There's a, an exorcism and a healing of this man all rolled into one on this occasion. But, verse 15, some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Beelzebul is one of the names in the Bible for the devil. It literally means Lord of the Flies. Um, you might remember the, the god Baal, uh, who was worshipped by some of the nations in the Old Testament. We came across him in our series in the books of Kings a short while ago. Elijah uh, and the prophets of Baal. Um, same, same, same name, same word, basically. And so these people are saying, essentially, that Jesus' power is demonic and that he must be doing evil things. He is evil and dangerous. But then verse 16, we're told that others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. I guess they were wanting to take the, the wait-and-see approach. We're not quite sure what you're up to, Jesus. Could you just, uh, could you just show us a bit more? Could you, could you demonstrate something which will show us clearly who you are and what all of this means so that we can know? Now, first of all, I want to say, don't we, don't we see exactly those kinds of reactions to Jesus still today? I'm sure most of us have probably come across those kinds of things. There are plenty of people around who, who would reject Jesus as being the one sent from God. Perhaps not so many who would accuse him of being demonic uh, and give that particular reason, but certainly reject him firmly. And I imagine that most of us can probably think of people who might do that. And then, of course, there are others who want more from him before they're willing to kind of make a commitment, uh, make a decision on what they think of him. And, and come to a decision. A bit like the people in verse 16. Uh, they essentially want a sign from heaven. They might say things like, I, I could believe in God. I think I would believe in God if he would just show himself to me, if he would reveal himself to me. So first of all, it's nothing new. I mean, this happened right from the start as Jesus was walking the earth in his ministry. He got these different reactions which showed uh, the, the way that he divided people. A passage like this, of course, shows that that second one is really just an excuse, isn't it? We may imagine, certainly some of our friends may imagine, that if they could just see Jesus do an amazing miracle, then that would be enough. Then actually we would believe. Here is a crowd of people who have just watched Jesus cast out a demon and enable a man who's never spoken to speak. And what do they do? Um, they want another one. Can you just do something else, Jesus? So really, are they looking for a reason to believe or are they looking for an excuse not to believe? And sometimes we need to ask that question. Now, of course, that's not true of everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, there are plenty of people who are genuinely seeking and have questions which need answering. And uh, maybe that's somebody who's here this evening. Maybe it's somebody you know. Uh, and we need the wisdom to work out which are the genuine questions and which are they trying to avoid the issue and not have to come to a decision. Jesus' miracles cause division. By the way, it's also just worth noting on this. Did you notice that 
No one here seems to doubt that Jesus does have the power to do the miraculous. I guess you can't really when you've just watched him perform it. And uh, as we've just demonstrated, there are many other ways in which he does that, aren't there? Uh, I'm sure there are some who perhaps would have liked to take that option as a way of, as a way of rejecting Jesus, but they can't. And of course, again, it's worth noting, there are some people who want to take that option today, aren't there? And say, well, Jesus, you know, he, he was a great teacher. I like some of the things he said. Judge not lest ye be judged. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm mixing up my versions there, aren't I? But some of the miracles, we we can't believe those in this day and age. It's only possible to say that, of course, if we ignore the the witness of the eyewitnesses who were there uh, and who reported on what he was saying. Um, The Gospels are historically reliable. If you've got doubts about that one, um, I'd love to talk to you more about that later on and why I'm convinced that is the case. One of the reasons we can be confident that Jesus did the things that they say he did is that they were written in the lifetimes of many of those who were there, including those who weren't his followers. And so it would have been very easy for people to challenge those things if they were not true. Okay, how does Jesus react to all of these things? Well, to the first group of people in verses 17 and 18, he basically says, don't be daft. Don't be silly. You're suggesting I'm casting out demons by the power of the devil. That doesn't make any sense at all. Satan may be very evil, but he's not stupid. A point which people in this day and age would also do well to remember. Many would laugh at the idea of a devil today, which I imagine the devil would be very pleased to hear. He's not daft, doesn't go around casting out his own evil spirits. So much for that theory. And then Jesus adds in verses 19 and 20 that he's not alone in doing this. What about your followers, he asks, Uh, or maybe it's your sons. It's a tricky verse to be sure exactly what Jesus means, whether it's a reference to his own disciples or to the disciples of the Pharisees. But either way, he's basically saying, it's not as if I'm the only one who's doing these things. Are you accusing everyone of being in league with the devil? That idea makes no sense. The people are divided, and as Jesus shows, they're also confused. They don't know what to make of him. That's the first thing that Jesus' miracles do. They get to the heart of where people stand and they show the divisions that there are. Here's the second thing. Uh, Jesus' miracles announce the arrival of God's kingdom. They reveal that the kingdom of God is arriving and is at work. Verse 20 is quite an important verse in Luke's gospel. And I think it's important enough for us just to pause for a minute to think about it. Uh, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, it's not just that Jesus is not on the devil's side, it's quite the opposite of that. It couldn't be more opposite. His miracles are the signs that actually God's kingdom has now arrived. Signs that the one has come who is going to defeat the devil, defeat evil and all of his kind. Uh, Jesus' miracles are a sign of this. I guess that's why many of them involve casting out evil spirits and showing that he is more powerful than the evil one. Uh, Jesus' miracles are signs of this. Now, the people in the crowd had got one thing right. They understood that Jesus' miracles were significant, that they were pointing to something, but what they'd got wrong was what they signified. They thought it was the presence of evil, But actually, it's the power of God and the defeat of evil. Jesus says, look, evil is losing here. 
the demons are being cast out. Now, this is a sign that God is at work. And that is why it ought to be no surprise to us that we find many miracles in Jesus' ministry. I asked them the reason why you thought that was the case at the beginning. One of them is that it points to things that are true. Uh, Another reason is that if the Son of God has come into the world as the one who's been promised to set right what is wrong, to defeat what is evil, and to bring hope, well then is it any surprise that he might encounter some opposition from the forces and the powers of evil? There might be something of, of, of a battle going on, of sparks flying as they come into contact with one another. The kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus says. Uh, And notice the tense, has come upon you. Not will come upon you one day, after I've finished what I've come to do, after I've died and I've risen from the dead and and when I return again. No, the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's a, a bit of a touch of the Normandy landings Uh, in this. For those of you who are students of Second World War history, and others of you who've had to be students of Second World War history because you needed to do it for GCSE or A-level or something, and you may remember, it's often said about the Normandy landings in 1944 when the Allied forces uh, managed to to land on the beaches of France and set up defensive and attacking positions and become established, that although there was still another, pretty much another year of the war in Europe to go, From that point onwards, many reckon that the outcome of the war was never really in doubt, that there was only going to be one winner. Now, of course, there were many battles still to be fought. There were many deaths still to come, sadly, between that and the end of the war. But that was the turning point, many historians reckon. And in a similar way, after Jesus has arrived and lived and died, and risen. Yes, we are still waiting for his return and the day when everything is set right and when the things that are broken are fixed and when we see the suffering and all that is wrong in the world no longer there. And yet at the same time, the kingdom of God has come upon you and the outcome is not in doubt. And if they're the sign that in Jesus God's kingdom is here, Jesus' miracles therefore also show that the devil is defeated. And verse 21 says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The strong man in the parable is the devil, who is real, and he is strong, stronger than you, stronger than me. You shouldn't mess with him or take him lightly. But lots of people imagine that religion is essentially a battle between two equal and opposite powers of good and evil, light and darkness. That is never how the Bible presents things. The devil is nothing more than part of God's creation, rebelling against his creator. Um, Nothing like the evil of the Son of God. Sorry, nothing like the equal of the Son of God. Um, That's a relief, isn't it? (laughs) That was a slip for a sermon. Still awake. Um, Just a rebellious part of what God has made. And Jesus says when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the strong man's defenses and divides up the plunder. The devil is strong, but there is someone stronger. It's not me and you, but there is someone we can trust in. John the Baptist said that about Jesus earlier on in Luke. Someone stronger than I is coming. Someone more powerful than me. And here he is, the son of God, the king of God's kingdom, come to defeat the power of the evil one. 
And so the last thing that Jesus does here and that Jesus' miracles do for us is they call us to make a response. I mean, that's what Jesus is always after. It's what he's always provoking in people in whatever he does. And his miracles, in many ways, do put people on the spot. They force the people then to think, well, what do we make of this man? And they still force us to do that today. Uh, You've got to make up your mind one way or another, and there's no sitting on the fence. And in fact, if you look at verse 23... Trying to be neutral, Jesus says, is effectively the same as standing against me. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's what he says. And we need to see that that Jesus' miracles are not only telling us things about Jesus. They are there to point to us as well and to say to us, okay, so what is your response? And the reason that Jesus does this, because it sounds a bit kind of, you know, do you need to be quite that cut and dry, Jesus? Couldn't you be a little bit less harsh on that one? But this is why, look, verse 24, he says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes to arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept and clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. What's Jesus saying in all of that? He's saying, don't leave your house empty. You know, it, it would be like um, you know, decorating your house, making everything perfect, um, putting up pictures on the walls, leaving all your valuables out, and then going away and leaving the front door wide open. Invitation for something bad to happen. Jesus is saying spiritually, that's what it's like uh, if you just try and leave your, your life empty without making a commitment. You leave yourself defenseless because you're not strong enough to fight off the power of the evil one and he'll come for you. Let me come and live with you. Uh, Fill your life with me. Fill your house with my spirit and you will have nothing to fear. In a sense, that parable in verses 24 to 26, it's the spiritual equivalent of, of when scientists say nature abhors a vacuum. When there is a vacuum, something will fill it. Well, something will fill our lives. What will it be? Will it be Jesus or will it be something less good? And Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't want anything else to happen. And that's why he says, you can't be neutral. You need to be for me or you're against me because he's coming to bring rescue. I take it that's also at the root of his response to the woman's blessing there right at the end in verse 27 and verse 28. Uh, He's saying, here's the real blessing. It's for all those who hear the word of God and obey it. And he's kind of building on that parable of the the man who built his house on the rock from a few chapters earlier on, where the, the wise man was the one who not only heard the words of Jesus, but put them into practice. Uh, and he's taking the house metaphor a step further. He's saying your house won't be vulnerable to robbers or to enemies if you have invited me in. So miracles, or at least one miracle here, probably not the first one we think of when we think of what Jesus did, uh, but one which helps us to think about what he is up to. Um, Let's take a moment to reflect and to pray as I close. When you read about what Jesus did here and what he says, uh, maybe you want to give thanks. Uh, Maybe it's just a reminder to give thanks to Jesus because he is the one who came to defeat evil, the one who came to give hope, the one who came to be with us and invites us to let him take center stage. 
Um, maybe um, you, you hear these words of Jesus and you think, well, this is actually a bit of a reminder to me to, to, to not sit on the fence, um, but to make that commitment, to make the invitation to him to come into my life once again. Maybe verse 23 is the one which weighs heavily on your mind as you read these words. Or maybe as we're reminded again that Jesus is the strong man, the one who is able to both defeat the enemy and protect his people. We're challenged to pray for our neighbours and friends and pass on his invitation to them. So let's just be quiet for a moment as we think on these things and I will lead us in a prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Son of God and that you came to earth uh, both with love and with power to bring good and not evil. Thank you that each one of these miracles that you did point to your power to defeat the evil one who is at work in your world. Point to your bringing healing and hope. And Lord, so once again, uh, cause us to turn to you, to look to you, and to trust you. Thank you that we need have no fear when you are at work in our lives. And so we pray once again, give us the, the assurance of faith as we're reminded of who you are and what it was that you came to do. Thank you that you do these things by the finger of God. And so the kingdom of God has come upon us. We ask it in your name. Amen.